Praise God. Be in prayer for, for them as they continue to what God has raised them up to do. That was a long time coming from the dream that started in my heart to the fruition of that 11 years ago and just to see Celebrate Recovery. Kind of, it, it, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if you graduated from John 3.16 or gone to John 3.16, would you please stand up? I want you to look around. Yes. So, and there are others. I know we, we started with about 40 people, and now it's not unusual for us to bump 300 on Friday nights. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing, messy ministry. Recovery is messy. You know why? Because life is messy. It's not about just addiction. It's hurts, habits, and hang-ups, which we all have. So uh, anyway, praise God for that. We're, gonna, we're going to uh, finish our series that we started a few weeks ago called Did God Really Say? That comes out of Genesis that when the serpent came to Eve in the garden and uh, she quoted uh, what God said to her, and she said, he said, well, did God really say that? Is that what he said? And that just seems to be a theme that the enemy has, that he's always challenging what God said. Always ch- you look in our society today, and everything challenges what God said. Well, I know the Bible says this, but. They got but religion, but. And uh, so I decided I want to do a, a series and, and ask the question, can we trust the Bible? Can we rely on the Word of God? And, you know, most of us as evangelical, Bible-toting Christians, we would say yes, but if you say, well, why? I don't know, I've just always been taught that. And so we have taken, uh, this will be the third service about why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? And uh, the first week we looked at what the Bible says about itself. So we, we quoted scriptures where the Bible talks about that it's God-breathed. And we talked about what we call Old Testament, Jews call the Tanakh, and the New Testament. And we looked at instances where even some of the early church fathers, even um, Peter, uh, quoted Paul and, and talked about his writings and called them scripture. And so we, we, we looked about what the Bible said about itself. Uh, last week we talked about fulfilled prophecy. There are over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them. We talked about nine and uh, we, we looked at those prophecies in the Old Testament. We looked at the fulfillment of those in the New Testament. And then we talked about the odds of one person fulfilling only eight of those 300 prophecies. And there was a, Peter Stoner did a study years and years ago. He was a mathematician and astronomer. And, and they did a scientific study on, on one person in all of humanity that could fulfill all of those prophecies was one and one hundred quadrillion. And, and to, to illustrate that, if you took one hundred quadrillion silver dollars 
and that they would cover the state of Texas, the landmass of Texas, which is over 265,000 square miles, two foot deep. And you would mark one of those coins and blindfold a guy and tell him to go anywhere he wants to and bend over and pick, pick that marked coin up. The chances of him doing that is one in 100 quadrillion. That's, and that's astronomical. To fulfill twice that many would be to the sun and back 30 times. It's just, it's just, in other words, it is, even just one in eight is impossible. One in eight is impossible. Yes, Jesus is Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the Bible, the Old Testament connected with the New Testament, proves it beyond all shadow of a doubt. Now today I'm going to do something totally different. Don't get offended. Because I, I, I rarely ever do this. Let me preface this by saying, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But I'm not quoting the Bible today. Oh my God, I just knew. If you're first time here, don't go away and say, you know that pastor just doesn't use the Bible. I use the Bible. I use the Bible a lot. T can attest to it. He puts all my scriptures in on Sunday morning. And, and it takes him a good 10, 15 minutes to get all of my scriptures in. But today we're not using one because we're going to look at external evidence that gives us evidence of the authenticity of the Bible. Not, not about what the Bible says about itself because people say, well, you know, the Quran says it's the Word of God, so it's the Word of God. That's circular reasoning. Okay? We don't want to just circular reasoning. So we looked at prophecies and the prophecies fulfill. That's plenty enough to believe. But what about external evidence? What about external evidence of Jesus Christ? And what about external evidence that has to do with the Word of God? And we're going to look in several areas today. So forgive me ahead of time for not quoting Scripture, okay? Uh, you know, Jason said that he shut down first service when I said I wasn't using Scripture. I may quote one just, just so that you can, you'll feel better. But the first place that we want to look at is we want to look in ancient history. Many of the skeptics say that Jesus never existed. That he just didn't, didn't exist. That he is the fabrication of an ideal or a concept that the Bible writers wrote down in order to get their message across. And I do have notes, if you would like notes, thank you for standing up and doing that. Hold your hand up, we have notes. These are all of the notes that I'm using today. We'd love for you to have those. If we run out, we'll go make some more. It's on front and back today. But the, so the first place that we're going to look is ancient history. Ancient history. There, can I just say this? There is very little written about Jesus in ancient history. That blows my mind. That absolutely blows my mind because, you know, we have studied about it. I mean, we've seen the prophecies. We've seen the fulfillment of the prophecies. We've, we've looked at the the conception, the, the birth, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And when you get into ancient history, he's hardly even mentioned. And when you consider that our calendar, our calendar is based on Jesus. 
They changed our calendar. We had B.C. and, and, and A.D. And, and, and it, it had to do with, with the birth of Jesus. So, and people have the audacity to say he didn't really exist. Well, I can see why they might say that. But so we're going to go look at external evidence, extra biblical evidence that, that Jesus existed, that, that we can trust the word of God. So the first one, the first mention, it has to do with the Jewish historian. He was not a Christian. He was Jewish. Okay? His name was Flavius Josephus. What a flowing name that is. Flavius. Who would name a kid Flavius? I thought Ozzy was an unusual name. But, but Flavius Josephus. What a name that is. Uh, he mentioned Jesus two times. Now, one of these is controversial. I'm going to read it to you. Some people think that a, a Christian later put that in there. Some scholars don't think that. But, but let me read what he had to say. It's talking about the time of Jesus. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. You know, the New Testament tells us that, doesn't it? He was the Messiah. And when upon the accusation of principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things, and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians who call after him has still to this day not disappeared. That that's, has to do with the writings of Flavius Josephus. Uh, he, he mentions him again and not as much. He calls him the so-called Messiah. So we don't know that, I mean... That is a little bit controversial, but he was mentioned by Jesus at least one time and maybe two. Twenty years after Flavius Josephus, there were two Roman historians. One was Tacitus, Tacitus and the other one was uh, Pliny, <laughs> Pliny the Younger. And uh, these were two guys that, that, that held high office of state at the beginning of the second century. They were Romans. Uh, from Tacitus, we learned that Jesus was executed while Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect in charge of Judea between A.D. 26 and A.D. 36. That would fit in the time frame of the crucifixion. And, and Tiberius was emperor between A.D. 14 and 37, which again would fit in that time frame. And... Uh, Pliny talks about uh, where, uh, information that when he was governor in northern Turkey, Christian, it says that Christians worship Christ as God. Neither of them really liked Christians. They didn't, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like Christians. He, he calls them pig-headed, obstinate. And uh, he calls their religion a destructive superstition. Pliny talks about interrogating Christians and getting them to denounce their faith and if they didn't, having them executed. 
So why would a Roman historian write about things that did not exist? Guess what? Jesus did exist. We have three, three evidences that, that, that he existed. So, so we see ancient history. Uh, then we have what, what is called the non-canonical works. Now what is non-canonical? Canonical means the canon or what we would call the Bible. The Old Testament, New Testament is the canon. And that's what we believe is the inspired Word of God. We believe that it's God-breathed, okay? That men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then He inspired them to write these things down and they've been passed on to us. That is the canon. But there are non-canonical books like some of the early church fathers, Ignatius and Polycarp. Now Polycarp and Ignatius were disciples of John. It's interesting. Disciples of John. See, a lot of, a lot of the skeptics say that the New Testament was written later, much later than the time of Christ. That maybe as far as 200 A.D. before they were written. But what's interesting that Polycarp, who lived in the time of John, quotes the New Testament. He quotes the New Testament. He and uh, Ignatius both quote the New Testament. They quote it extensively. And then there was uh, uh, Clement, who was a, a student of the Apostle Paul. And again, he quotes the New Testament extensively. So we see by that, by deduction, that the Gospels and the, and the writings of Paul and Peter were not late, they were early. We believe that all of the Gospels and all of the, what we call the New Testament was written before 100 A.D. Jesus was crucified about 30 to 33 A.D. And then uh, they wrote within 60 years of Jesus, they, they wrote their Gospels. Not two or three hundred years before they wrote their Gospels. So uh, then there are other of the church fathers that uh, uh, the early writers that if the Bible was destroyed, we could almost reconstruct it by the writings of the early church fathers. They quote the New Testament over 36,000 times. Now there's, there's about 7,960 something verses, 7,957 verses in the New Testament. They quote the New Testament over 36,000 times. These are the early church fathers. So what can we see by that? that in fact, one, one source says that all but 11 of the verses uh, were quoted by the early church fathers. Another source says about 65 to 70% of them were, were quoted by the early church fathers. So we can see from that that the New Testament is not an older document, it's a younger document, and it has been substantiated by the early followers of Jesus, those who were disciples of John, disciples of Paul, and then the disciples of those disciples of those disciples. It has been passed down from year after year after year after year after year. So the Word of God has been around a long time. Now, there's an interesting fact in the book, and, and don't buy this book unless you're a dedicated reader. It's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. 
It's about a 400-page book, and it's not easy to read. You have to be a trooper to read it. I've listened to it several times. I love it. It's one of my favorite books, and it's an apologetic book. It, it's, a, it's about defending the faith. It deals with evolution. It deals with so many different things uh, that it tells us how to refute the, fa the falsity of some of the teachings that we see around today. And, uh, but one of the things that it talks about in here is the, is the reliability of the New Testament. And uh, it talks about the gospel of Luke and Acts. Now Luke was not a disciple, uh, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. He was, a, he was a Greek physician. But he did a lot of research and he wrote his, his gospel uh, in, fact, in fact, his was one of the later Gospels. It not, it's not as old as John, but it's, but it's after Mark and then Matthew. But his, he wrote mainly to the Greek. And uh, he lays out some very historical, geographical things. In fact, uh, Norman Geisler and, and Frank Turek has, have gone through the, there, and they have quoted 81 instances where geographically he was right on. In fact, some that were contested were later discovered by archaeologists that that place did exist and it existed where he said he did. He even tells the depth of the sea in a particular spot, and it was right on. It was right on. So there were 81 instances in the book of Luke and Acts that can be proven geographically to be accurate. See, a lot of people say, well, the Bible is full of errors. You, you ever heard that? The Bible is full of errors, full of errors. And we're, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. In fact, we're going to talk about it right now. Because you know the truth of the matter is, we don't have the original copy of the Bible. We just don't. We don't have Paul's in Paul's handwriting, the manuscript that he wrote. In fact, those early manuscripts were written on vellum, which was calfskin, and, and papyrus, which was a plant. We didn't have the printing press until 1,400 years after this. And one bad thing about the papyrus and the vellum is that what happens over time? They, they disintegrate, they decay. Have you ever seen an old book that's been printed and, and how that, I mean, it just falls apart? Especially if it's not taken care of, it just falls apart. And so many of these early manuscripts are gone. The originals, as far as we know, do not exist. Now, if they do, we probably haven't found them yet. So what we have is copies of copies of copies of copies. And what they did is they took the Jews, thank God for the Jews, because they took great care in copying manuscripts. They had to do it by hand. No printing press. They had to do it by hand. Look at this letter. Make it just right. Make this. And they were meticulous in the way that they did that. And so not only did we have multiple copies, but see, here's something else. Christianity has been under attack since its inception. Remember A.D. 70? You remember what happened in A.D. 70? 
the Jewish temple was destroyed. And many of the, of the Old Testament, or the, they don't call it Old Testament, the Tanakh and the Torah, many of those manuscripts were destroyed. And there have been people that their goal in life is to wipe out the knowledge of Christianity. Listen, if God wasn't behind it, it would not have survived. But it has survived because God is involved in it. So we don't have the original. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. And people say, well, they have proven that there are, there are mistakes in those copies. Yes, they have. Now, there's no mistakes in the original. But there's some mistakes in some of the copies. Now, how can we say that we have the real thing? Well, it just so look at look at this graph that that it's in your notes there. Look at Caesar. Caesar wrote his writings in between 144 BC. The earliest copy is in 900 A.D., which is a thousand years after it was written. And look how many copy, look how many manuscripts have survived. Ten. Ten. Is that a lot? Not really. Look at Plato. Look at Plato. Between, you know, 400 B.C., the earliest one is 900 A.D., 1,200 years after it was written. There's only seven of those that remain. If you go all the way down to the, to the New Testament, was written between A.D. 50 and A.D. 100, and the earliest transcripts that we have is A.D. 125. That's 25 years later, and there's over 24,000 manuscripts. That, that are Greek, Latin, Coptic, different ones. There's 24,000 manuscripts that, that we have, that we know of. And they're, they're discovering new manuscripts all the time. So how do we know if there are errors in some that we have the real? You compare them. And the ones that have looked at these manuscripts says that the, the mistakes are not major mistakes. They're just punctuation marks or the way that a word is misspelled or some minor thing like that. Nothing that would change the doctrinal statements of the Word of God. You know, it's, it's all there. It's all intact. And so we, we can know by the, what's been established by the early church fathers, the, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of that has been established by the early church fathers. Nothing of major importance, nothing of, of, of great impact in those discrepancies in some of those, some of those copies of copies of copies. We have a massive amount of evidence. 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. The next greatest one is 643 and that's Homer's Iliad. Now we don't ever doubt that book. We got 640 manuscripts. Hey, we probably got the real thing. How do we know? You compare the manuscripts. How do we know we got the New Testament? You compare the manuscripts. 
You compare the manuscripts. In fact, one of the guys that did the study says that, that the Iliad is 96.5% accurate. The New Testament is 98.5 accurate between the manuscripts. A, a percent and a half of differences in manuscripts. And it really doesn't have anything to do of major concern. Now, I was raised in a denomination, and I, I surrendered to preach in a denomination. And I left that denomination because of this reason. I went to, after I had surrendered to preach, I went to... A, uh, this church put on a, a conference and they brought in this smart guy and he gave us a history of the translation of the Bible. And one of the things that he talked about was that there was a group of people called the Masoretes, the Masoretes. And there, there came a time in, in the Jewish history that the Hebrew that the, uh, the transcripts are in and, and you know how language changes over years? That it got to where that the Hebrew people could not read that Hebrew. And you know, the, the Hebrew at that time did not have vowels or punctuation marks. In fact, the, the, the tetragrammaton, the, the name of God, the, the four letters, Y-H-W-H, is, is the English translation of those we say Jehovah or Yahweh, doesn't have a vowel or punctuation mark in it. So what the Masoretes did, these were Jewish scholars and they went in and they added vowels to the Hebrew and put in punctuation marks so that they could pronounce and do those things. So this guy, he took us through that in the Masoretes, how they, how they altered the, the manuscripts. And when he got through, he said, I did that just to prove to you that this is not the word of God. It contains the Word of God. And so my question is, if it's not the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God, who gets to decide what's the Word of God and what's not? Are we leaving that up to the individual? Well, I don't, the miracles are not the Word of God. But, but, the, but the good things that Jesus said, that is the Word of God. But the miracles and the resurrection and all of that, that's not the Word of God. See, that's where they're going with that. What he didn't tell us was that this didn't happen until from 700 to 1000 A.D. After Christ. It wasn't B.C., it was A.D. 700 to 1000 years after Christ. And it wasn't even the New Testament, it was the Old Testament. But you know, there was a monkey wrench thrown into that in 1947 when uh, this little shepherd boy throws a rock into a cave and he hears a clink and he goes in and he finds what we call one of the greatest archaeological discoveries, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they got those Dead Sea Scrolls and they begin to read those. And you know what they determined? They read the same as the manuscripts, except for the vows and the punctuation. They did not alter the Word of God. It's the same. It's the same. And you know what's interesting, and I'm, I'm fixing to close. 
What's interesting is uh, Isaiah 53. Some of the skeptics of Christianity says that 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 was added later after Christ in order to make Christ look like Messiah. Guess what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was predated, that it was dated 250 to 300 B.C.? Our earliest scrolls that we have until then was, you know, 100 to, to 200 A.D. of the Old Testament. This one was dated 250 to 300 B.C. Guess what was in there? Isaiah 53. What does Isaiah 53 says? He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. I'm quoting the scripture now. Are you listening? The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Man. I left my denomination for that reason, because I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that we can trust the Scripture. Now, I said all that to say this. You can intellectually say that the Bible is true. That's the Word of God. And I believe everything in that book. That's the beginning. It's not what you believe. It's not what you think. It's not what your opinion is. It's what you do with what you believe. See, the Bible is not just given to us for information. It's given to us for transformation. And it's not until you, David said, I'm going to quote scripture again. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we put the word of God in our heart, guess what it does? It begins to transform us from glory to glory to glory to glory. That's why the Bible was given to us. Not so that we could just be informed. It's so that we can be transformed. That'll preach, Brian. That'll preach good. It, 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 it's transformation. My famous saying that is now on a shirt. <laughs> Why'd y'all do that? God loves you where you are. But he loves you too much to leave you there. That's what I'm talking about. We come to him messed up, goofed up, and he saves us. But he loves us enough not to leave us there. And as we begin to put the word of God in our heart, as we begin to renew our minds to the word of God, you know what he does? He starts transforming us. He, he brings us from glory to glory to glory to glory. And he causes fruit to grow in our lives so that we can be the shining light in this dark world that we need to be for His glory. Amen. Amen. The end. Praise God.